Welcome back to If Plants Could Talk. This is Garrett. I'm your host. Today is November 11th, 2021, and I am here by myself because I had a cancellation, and I hope that person's okay. I haven't heard anything from them today or yesterday, so uh, I had gotten all set up, though, hoping to podcast today and uh, didn't work out, so I am here to tell you guys a story. I hope that that's okay with you. I have been wanting to use this platform to talk about addiction. And when I first set out on this mission to even create a podcast before If Plants Could Talk, I had created this podcast called That Was Then, This Is Now. And the whole premise was uh, overcoming adversity, you know, struggle, addiction, mental health. And, uh, you know, it just didn't stick for whatever reason. Maybe I just didn't pour myself into it the way that I did with the plants. But I promise I will tie this all back to plants and how I feel that plants saved my life. So obviously my name is Garrett and I am from Long Beach, California. I was born in Long Beach Memorial on April 20th, 1990. I actually was raised though in a different area. I was raised like one town over in the Seal Beach area for most of my uh childhood and uh i moved back to long beach in uh, 2009 i think something like that and i've been here ever since and um i came from a pretty good family i i have to say i came from a pretty good family uh we had our problems for sure but uh you know my mom she's an immigrant from the philippines she moved here when she was young uh her my grandfather joined the navy and they moved to san francisco and uh, my dad's from Augusta, Georgia. He's Caucasian. And we think we are English. And uh, yeah, he hitchhiked across the country when he was 18 years old with $200 in his pocket and made a life for himself. And I'm very grateful for the privilege that I was afforded that both my parents found their way out of poverty and uh, created great lives for themselves. They're not together anymore, but that's okay. Uh, I'll probably get there at some point in this story so coming up as a kid, I have to say I didn't have a lot of struggle, uh, if any, um, it, besides for, you know, uh, like childhood trauma for sure and like uh, domestic violence and, and alcoholism being in my family. But uh, I'm talking about like financial struggle. It wasn't really a thing for us, um, at least not at first and, and not until like later years did that kind of stuff start to happen. But um so I just remember as a kid, like always feeling really different, like I didn't fit in and that um, I always had to like try to prove myself to other people and I would change myself a lot to try to fit in, whether that was like the way I dressed or, you know, the way I presented myself and, um, you know, some of the trouble that I caused, I believe was to like, I don't know, make up for how I was feeling on the inside, you know, I was very insecure and, uh, you know, just kind of a, a troublemaker for sure. Uh, always getting into fights, always getting in trouble. I got really, really bad grades and was, you know, almost kicked out of multiple schools and had to, had to bounce around a lot in schools. Um, in 1998, when I was eight years old is a great place to start with my story. 
I was actually bit in the face by a dog and I got a hundred stitches in my face and in my neck, uh, over a hundred stitches in my face and my neck. And, uh, my neighbor had this dog. It was a U S customs airport drug sniffing dog. It was one of those dogs that you would see at like border patrol or whatever you and customs at, um, the airport. And so my neighbor had this, had this family member that was in the U S government and, this dog had been retired and uh, it was a pretty old dog and um, they wanted to to rehome the dog. It had been living in a kennel for some number of years and come to find out later it had bit somebody else before it bit me. And uh, anyway, so my neighbor got this dog and I went over there to go see their new dog. And uh, I remember one of the kids pointed to the dog's gums and we're like, oh, the dog's gums are bleeding. His gums are bleeding because he was chewing on a bone. And uh, I, I reached my face in to take a closer look. And the next thing I knew, I was locked in his mouth. He, he grabbed onto my face and uh, started ripping his head left and right. Uh, I got mauled and I got my face ripped open. So like while he was like tearing through my face, I fucking pulled my, my face out of his mouth and uh, probably saved my life by doing that. I, I remember ripping my face out of his mouth and running to the dad and uh, the, the kid, the neighbor kid's dad. And uh, I'll never forget the look on his face when he saw, you know, what was happening and uh, this wound on my face that was uh, pretty gnarly. And so anyways, we, I got rushed to the hospital and I, I remember I had this plastic surgeon that, uh, he had worked on boxers. Like we had my pediatrician referred us to this guy that, that did, uh, like Muhammad Ali and all, all these pro boxers. And, uh, he came out and stitched me up and, you know, I've got a pretty good scar on my face. It's, it looks pretty good considering how bad it was. And, uh, I would say that that was a traumatic experience for an eight year old for sure. And, uh, I had to stay out of school for quite some time. And, uh, I remember getting letters from other students and like one of the letters said like why did you tease the dog and uh you know these kids just really didn't understand and back in those days you couldn't wear a hat to the public school that I went to and so I had a doctor's note that said I could wear a hat right and uh that made me stand out because I was the only kid wearing a hat and for the first couple of weeks that I was back after taking some time off I had gauze on my face and, uh, you know, I stuck out and, uh, once the gauze came off, people started calling me Scarface and I got into a lot of physical fights because of that and, uh, got picked on a lot. And, uh, I ended up suing the, the U S government and my neighbor and, uh, it was a long process it was quite some years later that I finally uh, was able to settle. And uh, I got a sum of money that some people make in a year. You know, some successful people would make in a year. Um, but to me, this little kid that had no idea the value of money, you know, nobody ever taught me that. And uh, I, I didn't understand like financial finances or a budget and, um, to me, it sounded like a million dollars and it wasn't, it was a lot less than a million dollars, but 
So like as a kid, I'm knowing that when I turn 18, I'm going to get all this money, right? And so like probably by the sixth grade, just a few years later, I'm like way off into the future. Mentally, I am elsewhere. I'm daydreaming. I just remember wanting to grow up. I want to grow up. I want to grow up fast. I want to turn 18 so I can get this money and I'm going to be this great success. You know, I'm going to start my own clothing company. Eventually it was like, I'm going to have a giant marijuana operation and, uh, you know, I'm going to make this life for myself. And I remember like as a kid, all I ever wanted was to have a family young. Uh, my parents were pretty old when they had me like 35 plus and uh, I was the youngest of four children. I left that part out. You know, I got two older sisters and an older brother. I'm the baby. And uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to, I always wanted to have a family young. I was like, I'm going to be a young dad because of this uh, huge age difference between me and my parents. Uh, they they don't understand me. They're from a different era. You know, we're so different. They don't have the energy that I'll have when I'm a, when I'm a young dad, I'm going to have all this energy and I'm going to be such a great dad. And, you know, I'm going to have kids at like 22 and, uh, man, I was naive. I wish somebody would have <laughs> shook me a little bit. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? You know, wait till you're 30, wait till you're 35. Like your fucking parents had you, you know, but, uh, anyways, um, so pretty early on, I started experimenting with substances. Uh, I would say right after the dog bite, I began becoming curious. I would hear these stories about these older kids that were getting in trouble for huffing chemicals and smoking cigarettes. And I thought it was so cool. I thought all these older kids that were badasses were so cool, like rolling up a pack of cigarettes in your sleeve. It was so cool, man. And, uh, yeah, so I would I looked up to these older kids and then I started experimenting. I remember sneaking into my parents' liquor cabinet by the time I was in second grade. I mean, I'm eight years old. And this is, the timing is, like I figured out later, it was right after the dog bite, you know. And uh, yeah, I, I, I would sneak into the, just to try stuff. Uh, I remember trying cigarettes and like not inhaling at that age too, like not knowing what I'm doing. And it wasn't until... Uh, about fifth and sixth grade that I actually started like habitually using substances like on a daily basis. So like by the sixth grade, I was drinking on the weekends with my friends and partying. And I remember like the first time I drank, I drank until I blacked out and uh, smoked pot every day. I became a stoner, you know, at 12 years old. And uh, yeah, I like hung out with a lot of older kids and, you know, it's like get peer pressured into stealing bottles for these older kids like to run into the store and steal a bunch of alcohol and yeah I, mean, I had some really bad idols unfortunately and by the time I was in eighth grade I had tried cocaine and uh, started experimenting with mushrooms and uh, uh, shortly after that the next year well actually let's stay there in in, in the eighth grade I, uh, I went down to Mexico on a surfing trip with my friends and uh, my friend's mom who was like the cool mom right and uh, we went into a pharmacy as little ass kids, 14 years old. We go back in those days, at least you could. I walked into a pharmacy. I bought a bottle of Somas and I brought them back across the border and uh, was selling them and taking copious amounts of them on campus at school. And I got caught. And uh, I remember when I got caught, they were like, you know, wanted to expel me, but they couldn't prove it because I was fucking slick. And, uh, you know, they never really found it, but they, they knew it was happening. And um, 
it was such a controversy. I ended up just leaving the school and, and going to this private school for fuck ups because uh, I couldn't get in anywhere else. And um, I had been suspended so many times for fighting and, you know, had terrible grades, uh, you know, it's like a D's and F kind of kid, you know, and I, I was the type of kid that would get all F's and D's. And then in drawing and painting, I would get an A or in photography, I would get an A um, always very like artistically inclined and uh, would like sneak out of school, ditch school to go skateboarding all the time. Like that was my thing, you know, like skating and art. And uh, I was really into like apparel and like fashion and stuff and painting and graffiti and all that stuff. Hip hop. I started DJing around that age too. around 12 years old. I got my first pair of turntables. Uh, they were Stanton belt driven fucking vinyl decks with like a shitty little mixer like buy your kid uh his first dj set thing and um fell in love with turntablism and you know looked up to people like qbert and babu and you know pete rock and travel called quest gangstar all that kind of stuff and it was definitely like my my heart belonged to hip-hop um in the early days but anyways uh went back to the drugs you know um i remember after i got busted with the pills i uh I started journaling because like shit was really hot at home. You know, my family was really disappointed. I remember my mom crying and, uh, uh, you know, nobody ever really believed that I was as bad as I was. Nobody wanted to, I was enabled a lot and it's not their fault. It was the tools that they had at the time, you know, but, um, I definitely was enabled to continue to do what I did and, uh, nobody really knew just how bad I was, you know? And I remember journaling. Uh, this is the first time I had suicidal thoughts. I was, uh, about 14 years old and uh in, in in the eighth grade whatever whatever age that is 13 14 and um yeah i'm journaling and uh i, I remember putting a bottle of pills and it said somas i drew it a little bottle of pills and somas and with a big x through it and it said should i kill myself and uh yeah my parents like found the journal my dad like was like like snooping around and he found it you know and uh, made photocopies of it and actually ended up giving me the photocopies later on in adulthood. But um, I can't imagine the pain that I was putting my parents through at that time, you know, and just like such a young kid. If my 14 year old was doing that, I would be devastated, man. And uh, fast forward a year, I tried meth when I was 15, 16. I started smoking meth. Um, first time I smoked meth, I was in like this crazy little trap house, like trashy with trashy a trashy crowd and um uh man they were like they were like these like white power guys you know and uh, i was mixed like one of one of my my friends he wasn't but his sister was and uh so his sister would bring her friends over and they were like these skinhead guys right and uh man i'm like hanging out with them and they would say foul shit to me you know really racist shit to me like like i'm a mud and i'm mixed because i'm mixed i'm a mud a disgrace to the white race and uh yes yeah, so i smoked meth and uh during the the during the period that i was just experimenting with meth at, at that age uh my my close my real friends like they told me like we're not gonna be friends with you anymore dude if you're gonna keep doing this and so, like, I smoked meth for, like, two weeks straight, and then I stopped because I didn't want to lose my friends, like, my real friends, not those losers that I was hanging out with, you know, that were, like, mistreating me. But, like, uh, and I want to say, like, during that situation, uh, during those days, like, the kind of stuff that I was exposed to because they were much older kids, um, you know, they did some some crazy shit, you know? Like, I would see, like, people, like, 
get hit with like chains or like, you know, just like stabbed and like just gnarly shit that no kid should see, you know? And, uh, yeah, I, I still like looked up to these other groups of like, you know, more gangster type kids. I, I wasn't a gangster by any means, you know? Um, but like, I always looked up to those kinds of people that were like in gangs and stuff. And, um, you know, started running around Long Beach and, uh, this is like, you know, 16 and I, I, I did that experimentation with meth and, um, I, I, I would skate. I remember I was trying to skate to like try to stay out of trouble and stuff. And, you know, I still had my passions and my, my life was manageable. I had my photography and my music and I was, you know, producing and I was DJing. I started DJing when I was like 16. I started actually like playing out, um, at clubs and stuff, you know? So, uh, I, I was DJing on the weekends all the time and um, doing party drugs. And uh, I would say from like 16 to about 20, I don't know, 24, 16 to 24. It was, it was a pretty similar time. Um, I can just kind of like summarize those years, those six years or so. I was DJing on the weekends every weekend, like sometimes it doubled double dipping like i had two bookings i would like dj in the desert one night and then like dj in a warehouse in la the next night and uh going on crazy missions and like you know doing lots of nitrous oxide and like ecstasy and acid and cocaine and um i would party hard from like friday until sunday sometimes monday tuesday you know and uh but my life was still manageable you know i was like still like going to school and, and doing the things that I needed to do to some extent, um, just barely getting by, you know, I still graduated, I graduated high school a little bit late, but I graduated from a continuation school. And, uh, when I was 19 years old, well, actually, uh, around that age, when I was raving a lot, I've, I've, I had this girlfriend, Lexi, who has since passed away. She, she passed away, um, uh, in, in 2018. And, um, you know, her and I were very close. We were like high school sweethearts. We we went to prom together and, um, yeah, you know, like we grew up together and, um, we, we would rave a lot and stuff, but then, um, her and I were off. We, we broke up and I met this other girl and, uh, started dating this girl with this kid. Uh, this girl, I was 19 years old. I had just bought a house. Um, I bought a house when, uh, like right after I got that money, I bought the house in the hood, like in Long Beach on, on Fifth and Cerritos. And um, yeah, I started dating this girl that had this kid. And it was like, I wanted to be a dad so bad. You know, like I had said before, I wanted to be a dad so bad. So I'm like, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to raise this girl's kid. You know, she doesn't have a dad. And I loved this child, you know, I really did. And, and, and I raised her. I did. I raised her despite um, all the shit that I ended up putting them through, um, you know, I ended up having another child with that same woman. Uh, my oldest son is with her. And, uh, I have to say that I, uh, that relationship was very toxic and in both directions, you know, I, I traumatized her. She traumatized me. I'll leave it at that, you know, and, uh, I've had to pay the piper on that one for sure. Um, there's still, I'm still facing consequences for, you know, the shit that I put my family through, um, uh, using drugs and, um, you know, like I, I lost custody and stuff like that and, um, just been slowly regaining it now. So, uh, I dated that girl, raised her kid. We didn't have that second child yet. Uh, we broke up 
in in uh 2014 and uh this was i'm 24 years old now and uh i was so irresponsible with my money you guys by the time 24 was around i was already paying peter with paul's money i was you know doing crazy shit like moving packs of weed and like getting into huge amounts of debt with people that that you don't want to owe a dollar to you know and uh just getting myself into really sketchy situations like vending cannabis to the medical marijuana dispensaries going door to door. You know, I remember I got robbed, like a lot of fucked up shit happened, you know, and I was already really irresponsible and things were falling apart. And then, you know, we break up in 2014, I'm 24 years old and I'm like out of money and, uh, I'm like, you know, behind on my bills. And, uh, so what do I do? I get addicted to Oxycontin, you know, and uh, someone introduced me to this little pill called oxycodone. And, uh, you know, it was 30 milligrams and it costed $30. And uh, one line and I was off. That was it. Everything's black after that. My story changes drastically. Um, you know, now I'm using dr this drug every day just to feel well. I can't function without it. I'm willing to do shit so I can get it. Uh, you know, unspeakable shit so I can get it. And, uh, you know, I'm alone a lot. And, uh, you know, my lights are getting turned off. My gas is getting turned off. My water is getting turned off. And, you know, when it got so bad, I remember I was living in the house by myself and uh, I had no utilities. And so I'm walking my car got repossessed. I'm walking to the water machine at the gas at the uh, li the liquor store, and uh, I'm filling up one of those Arrowhead water bottles, a uh, five gallon water bottle with water, and then I'm carrying it back to my pad, and uh, I'm showering with less than a gallon of water. You know, like once every few days, I work up the energy or I have enough drugs to get by. I feel well enough to to go get the water so I can shower. I'm, I'm pouring this water onto my body, like fucking bird bath in it, you know? And, um, man, I was depressed. And, uh, I remember spending weeks at a time in bed and wanting so bad to get off this drug, but I can't, I can't, you know, I can't stop. I can't put it down no matter how bad I want to. And nobody knows just how bad I am. Nobody, not a single person knows how bad I am. You know, maybe my ex, but, um, and then I'm like, so then I, 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 I end up having to file for bankruptcy, right? And um, I filed for this Chapter 13 bankruptcy, which, like, let me keep the house, but, like, forgave all my debt and ended up selling the house out of bankruptcy and uh, was able to recover a little bit of money from the house. And uh, that was the worst decision ever because the house is worth so much more now. I fucked up. But uh, anyways, uh, I got a little bit of chunk of change, you know, and... Uh, Within two months, I was homeless. Within two months, I spent every single dollar of that decent chunk of change uh, on drugs. And uh, all I had left was my van. All my belongings had uh, been sold off, auctioned in a in a storage unit. Like, I stopped paying my storage unit, and um, all of my childhood possessions were in there. And, like, pictures... Um, everything from my life was in there and it got auctioned because I didn't pay it. And, uh, 
I'm living in my van now. And uh, I remember it's like, it was around like Thanksgiving to New Year's. I was living in my van in this parking lot in, in uh, Long Beach on the border, like a river's end. You know, it's like this little little river jetty parking lot. And uh, I had this Volkswagen bus and uh, me and my dog, Lua, were living in the van and uh, nobody knew. Nobody in my family knew that that's where I was staying. Um, I was too ashamed to ask for help and uh, had not yet tried to go to rehab or anything like that. And um, I just remember like that was like that was like early rock bottom for me. <laughs> the funny thing is it, it gets so much worse after that, you know. That's just like early rock bottom. And uh, I remember like I woke up on Christmas morning and my ex like met me at like a Ralph's parking lot and like bought me some razors and like some shaving cream. And I like used a water bottle and I shaved my face and like put a button up on and like went to go show my face at my family's house and stuff like that. And, you know, that was like normal for me. Um, uh, eventually I was able to, well, I left this little detail out during that time that I was, um, homeless. I, um, my, my, my ex, we were so off and on and, um, I, I, she was, uh, nine months pregnant, um, you know, expecting my first born son. And, um, despite her being nine months pregnant, I, I still couldn't stop, you know, I'm about to have a baby. I had just gotten this chunk of change, this large amount of money from selling the house. And I was supposed to be saving it so that we could get ready for having this baby. And, uh, I spent it, I spent it all. And, um, I remember the day that my son was born, I was so happy because not just because my son was born, but because, um, I got to stay in the hospital and, um, you know, they had food and fucking it was warm and I wasn't sleeping in my car. And we ended up actually staying there for like a few days because it was like a traumatic birth. And, um, you know, like the baby was like in the NICU and stuff and she got fucked up giving birth. And anyways, um, my family ended up help helping us once the baby was born, uh, getting into a place. We kind of stayed in the motels for a little bit. And, um, yeah, we ended up getting into a place. And um, then I uh, found heroin. You know, shortly after that, I, I found heroin after my first son was born. And I couldn't afford the, the oxycodone anymore. And, you know, heroin was a lot more affordable and... Uh, so I made the switch and, um, this is where I finally got introduced to, to sobriety for the first time. Um, you know, once I started doing the heroin, I started realizing like, the, this is like getting serious, you know, and uh, not all the other stuff that already happened, but like, uh Oh, now we got to pump the brakes cause we're doing, we're doing heroin now. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so I go to treatment and, uh, you know, thankfully I had health insurance and, um, I went to treatment for the first time in this place in Costa Mesa and we went surfing once a week and, you know, like they reintroduced me to my like hobbies and my passions. Like we did art therapy, we did sound baths and, uh, you know, I fell back in love with yoga and like 
my my spirituality which is something that i left out too like growing up i always had that um like you know always practice yoga since i was a kid and um you know always grew plants too that's another thing that i left out like i grew orchids as a teenager and my grandmother had a big um plant collection uh orchids and you know uh, staghorns and stuff like that and uh yeah, so I like I grew orchids um, in my parents' house when I was a kid, and um, so anyways, I you know I lost all that like when I started doing drugs and all my passions and stuff like that, and uh, this place reintroduced me to that and introduced me to recovery and uh, uh, AA, and uh, I did the whole AA thing. I dove in head first, and uh, you know I worked the steps. I got a sponsor. I got sponsees, and. Uh, ended up becoming an employee at the same treatment center that I went through as a client. So there were these other guys that had done that. There was these alumni staff, these guys that went through the program and ended up becoming like counselors and training and uh, trained at that facility. And I looked up to them so much and I wanted to, to be a counselor so bad. And so that's like, you know, gave me motivation. And then once I hit a year sober, I was able to work there and that was my first job in treatment. And um, yeah, I fell in love with it you know, and, and started to learn that this was a strength of mine. And I would have never guessed that like, like talking to people and like, uh, using my experience to help other people was going to be so rewarding and that I was going to be even the least bit good at it. You know, I always very, very much questioned myself and was very insecure and, uh, did not believe in myself at all. And, you know, that, that started giving me that external validation. Like you have a purpose in life, you know, there's a reason why you're here. There's a reason why you went through all this. Like you have something to live for. Uh, and, and so that's that's what I decided. This is what I'm going to do. Um, unfortunately, at 18 months sober, that time around, I relapsed. And uh, I went out for about two and a half years. So now we're in, I'm sorry if my timeline's fucked up, but like uh, around this time would have been 2015. I had just had my first child and uh, my first blood child and uh you know uh, my first time in sobriety and uh got sober for 18 months and then relapsed and you know I learned a lot during that time and uh thankfully I think that I was able to apply a lot of what I learned during that time on the experience that I gained both on the side as a client and on the other side as a staff member um you know and uh, in the program of AA but um when I went out I relapsed and you know they say like when you're when you're sober, your disease, your addiction is in the corner doing push-ups, just waiting for you to fuck up. Like, do it, just do it. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. I'm fucking ready. And as soon as I went and, and used for the first time, it was like fucking blast off, you know, um, into outer space type shit. Like I, I graduated into being an IV drug user, and um, you know, started IVing hard drugs. Uh, every day. And, uh, you know, I didn't just like pick up where I left off. I, I got catapulted into the next dimension of using drugs. And, uh, you know, I, I was always very competitive and like always wanted to be the best at everything. So I think like deep down that part of me, like always wanted to be, like, I want, I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going to be the best drug addict that I can be, you know? <laughs> and I, I would use such insane amounts of drugs copious amounts of drugs that that no human should ever be able to tolerate you know i would get these these uh, crazy tolerances and, and uh you know I eventually would overdose I, I overdosed 
more times than I can count. Um, you know, I was hospitalized for overdose. I, um, I had a drug induced heart attack, um, from, from IV cocaine use. And I was in a cardiac unit for a few days. Um, I was narcan multiple times. I had flatlined, you know, I was blue. My friends would find me blue and, uh, I have to call 911, and I had to do the same for a lot of my friends. Uh, I've had to do CPR and Narcan and, you know, just really traumatic experiences. And, uh, you know, during this run, like, you know, I was using meth, so I started, like, becoming a lot more criminal and uh, started engaging in some very criminal activity in, in order to get my drugs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I had left out that I, you know, I was arrested a lot, like, as a as a young adult from from 18 until now I've been on probation my whole life I've always I've been arrested so many times and you know my family has like always been able to help me except for this most recent time you know and uh, so long story short during this run you know I'm doing all this criminal activity I'm in uh, episodes of drug-induced psychosis like those guys that you see on Skid Row that are like you know talking to themselves and stuff that was me I was one of them um, I didn't know what was real and what wasn't, you know, I remember thinking like my roommate was trying to poison me. I remember sleeping in bed with a shotgun in my hand because I thought that my roommate was trying to kill me and, uh, you know, just so detached from reality. And, uh, I thought that, that I was going to be stuck like that. I thought I wasn't going to ever come back, honestly. And I still have a little bit of like, I'm still kind of like perma tweaked, you know, I don't know if people had noticed that listen to this, but like, you know, like I did a lot of long term damage to my body for sure. And uh, I, I think some of it may be irreversible. I hope not. But, you know, um, definitely gave myself PTSD. Uh, and and I, I'm not like a victim. I got I gave myself PTSD for sure. Like the, the shit that I did to get my drugs and, you know, the type of people that I hung around with. I put myself in this position to get traumatized, you know. And, and of course, there were times that I was a victim for sure. And things that happened to me that were, that shouldn't have happened to me. But, um, a lot of it was self-induced for sure. Like I caused myself a lot of trauma and, um, yeah. So during that run, when I'm like, you know, uh, during the two and a half year run after that period of sobriety, I lost my girlfriend, my, my ex-girlfriend, uh, not my baby mama, but my ex Lexi that I mentioned earlier on in the story, you know, um, I, I will, I will keep, her family's privacy and just say that, that she's gone, you know, and, uh, that was really hard on me. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever been through. And I, th I think that, uh, I couldn't look at it, you know, now we're, now we're in 2018. I've been, been running for a couple years now. And, uh, you know, I lose somebody that actually became one of my best friends and came back into my life, um, during this time. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my ex was long gone by then. My, my baby mama was long gone by then. And I had already lost custody and I started hanging out with her again. And, uh, yeah, she passed away and I couldn't look at it. You know, I couldn't look at it. And, um, I think I used at that situation, you know, instead of like feeling it, I just like doubled down on my addiction and was like, you know, I have nothing to live for. Fuck it. Like I don't have custody anymore, you know, like, I've lost everything that I ever wanted in my life. You know, I have no passions. I have no connections. I have no friends. Fuck it. You know, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to die a junkie. And I believed that. I believed I was going to die to, I believed I was going to die a junkie and uh, that overdose was going to be the cause of my death for sure. 
Um, and miraculously, somehow it wasn't. I don't know. I'm still here, but um, yeah, I gave up. I stopped trying to get sober. I, I didn't care anymore, you know? I, I just I felt no reason to to stop. And um, eventually I got busted, you know? I was involved in a very violent altercation and um, somebody got hurt and uh, it was like, you know, three of us dudes and uh, yeah, I got busted and uh, almost went down for, for something really serious, you know, and uh, it wasn't me. It's a thing, you know, and that's the truth. You know, I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I, I didn't do it, but I was involved and um yeah, I, I, they ended up throwing out the charges because, like I said, it wasn't me, and um, I, I I was facing some serious time. Uh, I got arrested, and the guy's okay, just so everyone knows. He's, he's just fine. There's somebody I knew, we were like all kind of friends that used drugs together and had a disagreement, and you know, one of the dudes ended up getting hurt, but he he's okay, and um, he had no interest in participating like in pressing charges or anything like that. And, uh, that's probably why I was able to get off in the first place. But, um, yeah, so now I'm locked up and I, I had been on probation and, um, but when you're on probation in California, they put you on a hold. So like you can't bail out. And I was so used to just like being able to call my family and being like, please bail me out, you know? And, uh, they would like collectively put together the money and stuff. And this time they're like, oh no, you have a probation hold. You can't get out. You're going to fight this case from in here. And that's when reality set, you know, on me. And I realized like, fuck, I'm fucked. You know, I had no idea what was going to happen with me. And I'm coming off of the sickest run I've ever been on. And, you know, I have no idea who I am anymore or what's going on. I'm 29, 28 years old, I think 28 years old. And uh, just a scared, lost, addicted little boy in, in, in a jail cell in L.A. County, you know. And I'm kicking cold turkey off of every drug under the sun. Uh, no meds. They don't give you any meds. They don't talk to you. They don't make sure you're okay, you know. I just got a blanket and uh, kicked on the hard metal surface. And uh, ended up getting sentenced to 16 months. And... I thought that uh, that meant that I was going to serve 16 months. I didn't realize that at the time that they they cut that in half. And like, if you get good time, they let you out a little early. So I ended up serving a fraction of that. And uh, while I was in jail, I rediscovered myself. I had a lot of time to to you know process all the things that happened um, internally, unfortunately. But um, you know, and I, I started working out like a maniac, like all day, every day, thousands of burpees every day. And, um, I remember people telling me in there that I wasn't going to stay sober, that I was going to get out. And the first thing I was going to do was use, but what I kept saying, the first thing I'm going to do is go run. I'm going to go run. Everyone's like, you're full of shit. You're not going to run. And I'm like, no, when I get out, I'm going to run. That's the first thing I'm going to do. And, uh, you know, sure enough, I did. I did. As soon as I got out, I started running. But, you know, while I was in there, I want to highlight this. Uh, I wore, uh, they they put me to work. I was in a working module and uh, they, they had me working in this, uh, this mental health. The twin towers is, is the largest mental health facility in the whole entire world, but it's actually a jail. And uh, so they have all these people that are unfit for general population housed in these fucking decrepit, creepy ass 
modules, these cells, and um, some of these guys are never going to see the light of day again. You know, they've committed heinous crimes, uh, child molesters, murderers, uh, people that are suicidal. A lot of them were suicidal. I would say the vast majority of them were suicidal, and they were in um, these gowns. They're in these suicidal gowns so that they can't kill themselves. They're like these Velcro fucking blankets that wrap around them, right? And uh, they would take them off all the time. And underneath, they were just butt naked. So these dudes would be there fucking butt naked, just staring. Like they had these glass doors for their cells so you could see right in. And they would just be standing there like fucking touching themselves. And, you know, like, oh, man, it was so creepy. These guys, like, they would ha- they had these big overgrown beards because they weren't allowed to use razors. Long, overgrown fingernails like monsters, man. Like their fingers were fucking long, like three inches long type shit. And, you know, they're like, like I said, they're touching themselves and they're saying creepy shit to me. I remember one, one of them told me he wanted to fuck my kid. And uh, another one tried to grab me through the trace lot because I would I would feed them. I had to take care of these guys, dude. So like I I I wanted to work though because it was like a privilege to be able to get out of your cell and like work. So so I did, and uh, that was my job assignment. And I would go and feed these fucking crazy people, and uh, they would. One of them reached through the through the trace lot while I was trying to feed him and, and grab me. And like if you like grab me like near my crotch, right? And so like I slammed his 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 uh, arm in the in the trace lot. I fucking slammed the door on it, and uh, you know the cops didn't do anything because they understood, you know. And uh, you know that's just one example of the type of experiences that I, I I went through while I was in there. And so you know, come to find out, when I get out, I got PTSD, man. You know. And, uh, you know, I'm going back to what I said earlier, like I put myself in that position and I honestly think that jail was the best thing for me. 100%. I'm so grateful for the time I did in jail because that's what I needed. I needed somebody to pull me out of my situation and slap me in the fucking face and tell me, dude, what are you doing? You know, and I needed to be removed from, from what I was doing and forced. And, uh, that was, that was good for me. I needed that, you know? Um, you know, another thing too, my mom, like right before I got arrested, she was diagnosed with, with stage four, uh, breast cancer. And, uh, they, they had said she was terminal. Thankfully she's still with us, but, uh, they had said she was terminal. So, you know, right when she was diagnosed, uh, I got arrested like a few weeks later and, um, you know, I was never really able to like be there for her during that time. Uh, it was the other way around. She, she would come and see me and I remember her. She was like getting chemo and like radiation and um, she was losing a lot of weight and she would come see me like sometimes once a week as much as she could. And, you know, she was wearing a face mask and this was before the pandemic. Um, She was wearing a face mask to protect herself, you know, and I watched her like, like slowly become more sick from inside jail, you know, and uh, I, I would talk to her, you know, as much as I could on the phone and stuff. But I thought she was going to die. I really did. I thought she was going to die while I was in there. And thank God she didn't, you know. And it kept me going, knowing that she was out there fighting. And so I fought too, you know. I fought for for my life as hard as I could. Because for me, this, this drug stuff, it's life or death, you know. That's it. Like for me, it's like I'm either going to jail or I'm going to die. If I use drugs, that's what happens to me. And, uh, you know, when I got out, I fucking ran. I ran 
every single day, all day long. Like, I had no job. I didn't have nothing to do. So I was fucking running. And I, I, I would run, like, up to 100 miles a month every month. That was my goal, you know? And I still continued my burpee workout. Started doing my yoga again. And started gardening, you know? I had this this cactus that I've talked about before on the podcast uh, this cactus that I was abandoned and it hadn't been watered the whole time I was gone and it was on its last leg and I revived it. And like seeing that plant come back to life was like a, like a fucking beautiful metaphor for like everything that I had just gone through, you know, and like seeing it come back and I was able to propagate it. And uh, I listed one of the cuttings that I took and, and rooted and on Etsy, like as a joke and uh, it sold and I ended up selling all kinds of plants. You know, I had I had plants and uh, started collecting more, and uh, you know, started selling like these little agave Americana pups that I was finding on online and stuff, like uh, people giving them away, and uh, you know, cactus cuttings and stuff, Peruvian apple cuttings, like whatever I could, and you know, what like started out as like a joke and just like a little dream and an idea, like came became true, you know. And the next thing I knew, I like I sold hundreds of plants, and you know it was off and running, and it became a business, and I didn't even really mean for it to, you know. And uh, yeah, like that kept me going, that kept me sober. Like I, I honestly think that like the plants were a huge part of my healing, were a huge part of keeping me grounded. Like rediscovering that, like really just like lit a fire inside of me, you know. And so I started like wanting to do things like this, like podcasts, and I started. Like, it wasn't right away either. It was, like, a very slow process for me to, like, get my creativity back. Because, like, when I got out, I had no idea who I was, you know? I had no idea, like, what I was going to do with my life or what was going to happen with me. And, uh, yeah, like, I went I, as soon as I got out, too, like, I, I joined a treatment center. I, I called up a treatment center, even though I was, like, six months sober already. Uh, I, the first thing I did was volunteer myself into a rehab and, uh, you know, started trying to get my custody back and working on all that, you know, like I did three months in, in outpatient and then I, I transferred once I got diagnosed with PTSD, it was Halloween 2019. I got diagnosed with PTSD and I had been out for like, I don't know, six months or something like that. And, uh, uh, I joined this this uh, intensive trauma outpatient program and uh, started programming with them like for nine months. And, uh, you know, it wasn't very useful, to be honest. It wasn't very helpful, but like the running definitely was. The running and the gardening and the photography, like I created a photography Instagram. I had the business going by then, you know, and uh, I'm I'm like playing music and like just really feeling like myself again, you know, that someone that I hadn't felt like for 10 years at least, you know, and I was back and, uh, yeah. So I, uh, I got a job. I started working in treatment. I remember I, uh, I, I had this planner, my, my current girlfriend now, Amber, like she's been a big part of this. Like we started dating almost uh, immediately after I got out, uh, we hadn't spoken in like 10 years, nine years. We hadn't spoken. We had known each other back in the day and like kind of hooked up as kids. Um, and then somehow she came back into my life and nine years later after not even talking once and, uh, was a rock for me to be honest, you know, and she, she, she turned me into a planner person and 
so I started writing down all my goals. Like I'm going to paint my room. I'm going to buy a car. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to address my PTSD. I'm going to get a therapist, all these things. And I started checking them off and it felt so good. You know, like I'm going to start my plant business and sell this many plants by this amount of time. And, you know, I just became this like very structured person and really benefited from that for sure. And, you know, started working in treatment again and, uh, really like decided that, okay, this is for sure what I want to do. I was working at this beautiful facility and surrounded by a really great team like people that I wanted to be like, and, uh, really strengthened my group facilitation skills. And I learned that like documentation, group documentation was like a skill of mine, like, like writing group notes. Like I saw so I'm analyzing clients and, you know, I'm observing their behaviors and, and, and their, their body language, like, you know, their speech patterns, whether they're anxious, whether they're depressed. And, and I'm, I'm, I learned that I can, that this is a strength of mine is like analyzing people and communicating with people, which is strange because I was never really good at talking to people. And, you know, here I am, I'm on a podcast. So I think that, 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 that was really good for me. Like that social, it revived my like social skills and, um, you know, I discovered that I was really passionate about this and that it was what I wanted to do, you know, so I started studying to become a counselor and, uh, you know, I've got all these hours, thousands of hours, uh, done now. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, became a program manager. I, uh, started managing a treatment center. I ran a facility with like sometimes up to like 20 clients and at all different levels of care. I, I was managing the detox, the residential, the the PHP, the IOP, uh, the whole the whole thing, you know. And you couldn't trust me for shit just a, just a few years back, you know. Um, so like a couple years into my recovery, this time now I'm managing a program, and uh, you know Earthling Botanicals taken off, and uh, I launched the podcast around that time that I became a program manager. I launched this podcast, and uh, it was really hard at first. Like when I first launched it it didn't seem like it was going to stick. Like I, I remember posting about it before I even made the if plants could talk Instagram. I was posting about it in my story saying, Hey, I, I Hey everybody. Like I want to have a plant podcast. Hit me up. Let me know if you guys want to come on. And nobody called, nobody volunteered. Nobody hit me up. Not a single fucking person hit me up. So I'm like, Oh shit. Like maybe this isn't going to work out, you know? And, uh, so I start hitting people up and instead, and I, this is what I learned is that you just have to fucking ask people. Like if you don't ask, the answer is always going to be no, you know? And so I hit up Victor Prick and Whittier Prick and they said yes. And they came on and it was so fun, you know, and it went so well. And so I just started hitting up other people, you know, the early days. It was like variegated Troy, uh, Euphorbia, Euphoria, Mad Potter's Crazy for Cactus, uh, key toy. Like I'm not trying to leave anybody out. This is what's coming to mind. And, um, you know, seeing the reception and, and how, how receptive everybody was and seeing like the plant community, like during this time period, like even just while selling plants was like giving me so much purpose and like really like giving, keeping me grounded and giving me comfort, like knowing that, that, that there was this community that like had something in common with me, which is, you know, like, for the first time in my entire life that like there was a healthy community in my life, you know, whether it's online or even in these in-person sales. And, uh, I really fell in love with the community and, and, you know, getting the feedback that I got, like who are this guy? I remember in the early part of the podcast, he told me like, you weren't born for this. Like you were made for this. 
uh, don't ever stop. Those were his words. Don't ever stop. And that stuck with me. Those words right there. I don't remember who it was, whoever you are out there. If you're listening to this, thank you for saying that because, uh, that, that right there kept me going, you know, and I, I doubted myself a lot and my PTSD was so bad when I started this. I had so much trouble getting through the early episodes. If you ask some of my early guests, they, they, they saw me, you know, um, and multiple times I wanted to tap out and it was really difficult for me, but I got through it and it like it really strengthened my group facilitation doing the podcast because like I'm now I'm like having these long in-depth conversations with people and I noticed it's like helping me in, in other aspects of my life. The podcast has been very therapeutic for me and uh, strengthened my recovery as well. And you know, here we are now. I'm like, I'm almost three years in, in January, January 14th. Um, I'll, I'll be three years clean from uh, all those substances that ruined my life. Now, I'm not going to say that I haven't um, experimented with like plants, but other than that, I don't use any kind of substances. I, I don't drink alcohol unless it's like a very special occasion. Once in a blue moon, you might see me with a drink. So I'm not here claiming AA sobriety, and I'm sorry if if that if that bothers you that that I you know that I don't that I identify as clean, um, and that it's not your type of clean. But for me, I was an IV meth and heroin user, and uh, you know I haven't put a needle in my arm in almost three years. So um, you can you can take with that. What you can do with that, whatever you'd like, you know, um, I don't smoke cannabis right now. Again, I was for a second, but then I lost my weed pen and I haven't smoked since, <laughs> uh, I left it at my girlfriend's dad's house and, uh, I take CBD. It helps me a lot. Um, I did the MDMA study, you know, I've been very vocal about that. I'll be honest about that. I think that psychedelics are going to change the world. I think that psychedelics are going to change the way we treat addiction. I think that, that our, our tr- current form of treatment, the modality that we use for uh, drug addicts and alcoholics is archaic and outdated. And the success rate is shit. Fucking like rarely do I see someone stay sober in my line of work that I do, you know, rarely. And what they're finding with the psychedelic treatment, believe it or not, is that these people are staying sober that go through these Ibogaine treatments or ketamine treatments or psilocybin treatments, MDMA treatments. Who would have thought all these substances that I used to use and abuse actually could be the solution to save my life? It's like full circle. It's so weird. I really do believe that my experiment, my experiences with those ketamine treatments, which I did, are completely legal uh, in a clinic with a doctor. You know, that, that these are the only things that I can really speak about openly right now, um, just for various reasons. But um, you know, that I did and it helped me immensely. And then I did the MDMA study too, and it helped me immensely. It cured my PTSD. I don't have PTSD anymore. It's gone. It's completely fucking gone. I still have like, like nothing's a hundred percent, you know, nothing in this world is a hundred percent, but, uh, those three sessions of MDMA that I did changed my life forever, changed my fucking life forever. My girlfriend says that I'm a thousand times better, a thousand times better. And I'm not, all the way better. I'm not, you know, I'm really not, but I don't fit the PTSD diagnosis anymore. You know, when they ask the questions, my answers are no to almost everything. And you have to answer yes to like a large fraction of them in order for them to say, okay, you fit this diagnosis. And I don't anymore. I was off the charts, severe, chronic PTSD, suicidal, you know, 
and uh, that stopped. Uh, I still struggle with depression. Unfortunately, I've been left with some depression, and I, I always had depression. Uh, it never really affected me a whole lot, but I, I think it's because I was so traumatized that uh, I was more affected by like trauma than depression. I, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't. My PTSD was so bad that I couldn't feel my depression. And now that it's gone, it's like, all, it's all I'm left with is like these, these bouts with depression, which is really difficult. You know, it really is. And, um, it's a battle, you know, but thankfully I don't have to worry about using drugs anymore. I just have to worry about these mental health symptoms that I have, you know, and, um, that, that I kind of treat my mental health as the same as I did with my addiction. And, and I'm not by any means out of the water with addiction, but like it doesn't bother me. I'm not, I don't have cravings all the time anymore. You know, I'm not hanging out with people that are using drugs. It's just not, it's not a problem for me anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't come up that much. Every once in a while it does, I'll get triggered and I want to get high for sure. Like it, it happens, you know, you know, probably more often than I'd like to admit, but thankfully it's so like uh, few and far between that I'm able to just focus on like, okay, let's beat this. Let's kick this depression's ass, you know, uh, let's deal with this anxiety. So like for, for me and what that looks like is, and, and ends up helping my recovery as well is like meditation, you know, breathing exercises, running, running, running. I can't stress enough how great running is for you. I think it's like the ultimate way of like energy movement, the ultimate form of energy movement. And, and like freedom, it's like, a, it's an expression of freedom. Like, that's why I wanted to run so bad when I was locked up. When I get out, I'm just going to run through the streets, you know? I'm going to run through the streets. And that's what I did. I just ran, man. And it's just the perfect way to be free, you know? Like, this chains, these these chains, this ball shackle and ball and chain that's been holding me down for fucking 10 years. It's gone. It's fucking gone. I'm running through the streets and I'm free, you know? And... I thank God every day for that shit, dude. Like straight up, I, I, I believe in God. I do. I believe in a creator. I believe in, in mother earth. And I believe in multiple gods. I believe that there are multiple, um, higher beings and, uh, you know, I, I, I do. And, um, I, uh, I, I have a spiritual practice, you know, so a wise man once told me that, uh, the root word of spiritual is ritual, so in order to be spiritual, it's something that you do ritualistically every single day to exercise your spirit, right? So running is spiritual for me because it's a ritual that I do every day at the same time or whatever time, days at the same time. And it's part of my routine, but it exercises my spirit because I feel fucking good when I do it. When I run, I feel good spiritually. So running is spiritual for me. Yoga is spiritual for me. Gardening is spiritual for me. Uh, I can't stress that enough. If you're out there and you're suffering and, and, and just please like try to find God, try to find something, something divine, uh, something bigger than you. And I, I really think that everything that I went through was a, was for a, a higher purpose. Like I was sent here to go through that, to go through all of that darkness so that I could find my way out and then help somebody else that's going through it. I really, truly believe that. And that message has come to me, um, you know, and that might sound kind of crazy, but it, it did. It came to me in a Reiki session. Uh, I had these voices telling me that, that my addiction was for, was for, was all a test and, um, that it was all for a higher purpose and that I could use my experience to help other people. And that that's what I've been doing, you know, and, and it's truly an honor 
to to share my story with other people and it's an honor to sit here you know free of addiction for nearly three years um and I think that's an important thing here too, because you know a lot of people think that recovery is very black and white. They think that uh, you know it's all or nothing, and it's not. You know, if it's not about trying to control your use because it's unrealistic. You know, we got to be real here. Abstinence is important, one hundred percent abstinence, if possible, whenever possible. Possible to abstain is going to be the best way to to you know stay away from that problem, to be out of addiction. But however. You know, abstinence is not always an option for everybody. So, you know, I abstain. Yes, I do. I don't use any drugs. I don't. Uh, I've taken medicinally, I've taken psychedelics, you know, but, uh, and medicinally, I've experimented with cannabis and it, it truly is a medicine. That's a fact, you know, but um, I abstain. I, I don't use Xanax anymore. I don't use alcohol. I don't use cocaine. I don't use heroin, meth, or anything like that, you know, I just don't touch it, and I changed everything, I changed everything in my life, I, I changed all my friends, I changed the environments that I hang out in, I changed everything that's in my life, and, uh, you know, my my environment is very, like, pure now, and uh, light, there's no dark people in my life today, and then that's a big important factor, but, so back to abstinence, um, I don't think that it's for everybody. I don't think that that recovery is black and white and that AA is the only way or that any other way is the only way. You have you have uh, Buddhist approaches like refuge recovery. You have smart recovery, which is more of a, like a psychology approach. It's CB, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Now you have these groundbreaking psychedelic studies that are changing people's addictions for sure because guess what? If you cure somebody's trauma... You know, that the pain that their trauma is causing them with these psychedelic medicine sessions, then they won't want to use drugs so much anymore. It won't hurt so bad that they need to use a drug to feel better, you know? So please, if you're, if you're not quite open-minded to that, like, read the studies. Read the studies. See what's happening. I think that this is going to change everything. I really do. Even adolescents, they're, they're treating, they're doing the next study for MAPS. Their next uh, clinical trial for MDMA is going to be in adolescence, and I support that 100%. I support MAPS doing MDMA studies on adolescence because I, as an adolescent, was very traumatized. And had somebody intervened with something as life-changing as this this form of therapy was for me as a teenager, none of that, I, I, I truly believe that a lot of that shit that I went through wouldn't have had to happen, you know? But there was, we didn't have those tools back then. And we do now. We do now. Now, now that's not to knock any other form of recovery because I do think that for some people, AA is the way. I believe that. I've seen AA work for so many people. It worked for me, you know? And that that's a great program and I've learned so much and I apply so much from it. I still use the book in my group facilitation all the time. I know the book front to back. It's a very important part of my recovery, Alcoholics Anonymous, huge part of my recovery. However, it's not always for everybody, you know? It's not. The religious aspect might not be for you. So just know that there, there's there's all these different options out there, all these different options. And, you know, you can try them all. <laughs> you can 
try them all. Refuge recovery is this Buddhist approach, you know, and they they uh, they use Buddhist principles and they don't identify as addicts or alcoholics. They just say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and this is what's going on in my life today. This is what I've been through. Nobody, I don't like that. I don't like saying, hi, I'm Garrett and I'm an addict because guess what? I'm not addicted anymore, so I'm not an addict. And, and I don't believe the statement, once an addict, always an addict. That's not fucking true. So stop saying that, especially to somebody that's sober. Don't say that. Because I'm telling you right now, I am living proof that once an addict, always an addict isn't fucking true. Okay? And, you know, sorry to get a little aggressive there, but, you know, it's very triggering for me to people to tell me, oh, you're going to be a junkie for the rest of your life. You know, and I've heard that in recent months from people that supposedly once loved me or, or do love me, you know? So we need to change the way that we look at addiction. Nothing in this world is black and white. Nothing. It's not simple. Nobody's journey is going to be like mine. And my journey is not going to be like anybody else's. You know, we all have to find our own path. But at the core of it, I truly believe that spirituality is of the utmost importance. And if you can't do that, then go the psychology route. Please deal with your trauma. Try psychedelics, psychedelic therapy, or even just try regular old therapy. There is there is some use for it for sure, you know? Find whatever it is. And I have all these resources if you ever need them. You know, I've lost so many people to overdoses. More people than I can count. You know, in the last few years, I've lost a lot of people to overdoses. And, you know, I know there was a death in the community recently where somebody lost their son. And, you know, it hurt. It hurt me. When I, when I saw it, I fucking started crying. And, you know, I just wanted to do whatever I could to, to help because I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be that mom that just lost their son and, and is stuck in an airport and having to buy hotels. And, you know, if, if you guys didn't see that story, it was so sad. And, you know, Mad Potters was sharing it. And I think Cacti Farmer, um, man, it's just like it can happen to any of us. And it's up to us to break the cycle. It's up to us to not pass this down to the next generation, you know, like I don't want my kids to ever have to see what I saw or go through what I went through. I did all that for them so that they don't have to, you know, and and if you're going through that, like, look, try to look at it that way, you know, consider that, like, like, thank you for going through that for others, because guess what? If you come out of it, you're going to be able to use that to help someone else. You're going to be able to use that to prevent your children from going through it. So thank you for going through all of that pain and, and, and the sacrifices that you made in your life so that one day somebody else can be helped and pulled out of that. Because that's what was done for me. People that went through what I went through helped pull me out of this situation. And now I get to do the same. So I'm so incredibly grateful for this podcast and I can't tell you how much I love plants and how much they've helped me um, in all forms, plant medicine, plants, just being around them, house plants, cacti, succulents, orchids. I still love orchids. Um, I love Trichocereus. I love Lophophora. I love house plants a lot. Like, you know, I got this, uh, I don't know, Swiss cheese plant behind me and I love it. It's beautiful. I like air plants. Um, I like plumerias. 
I like agaves. I like trees. I like plants. And um, I think that plants were a big part of what helped me. So maybe try that, you know? Maybe try gardening if you're going through the some trauma or, you know, mental health disorders or addiction, whatever it may be. But I appreciate you guys listening to me rant. I hope that I wasn't too all over the place. Uh, I hope I find the courage to post this. And I love you guys. Thank you for listening to me share. If everybody could please like, review, and subscribe to the podcast and hit that share button, I would appreciate that greatly. Bye.